Welcome to the Training Ground Guru podcast in association with Huddle. In every episode, we bring you insights into the teams behind the teams in professional football. Coming up on today's episode. People say, oh, you don't seem that bitter. And all that. I said, why would it be bitter after nine and a half years of me and many other people, by the way, I must add, making a huge difference to Burnley Football Club and the town and the feel and everything. Well, I'm going to remember it for a bad six weeks or eight weeks or whatever. Why do that? There'll be nothing but good news for me about Burnley. Nothing at all. Our guest today is Sean Dyche. During nine and a half years as manager, Sean transformed Burnley's fortunes both on and off the pitch. When he arrived, they were 14th in the Championship. What followed was seven seasons in the Premier League and qualification for Europe before his departure in April this year. Thanks very much for joining us on the podcast, Sean. No problem. Pleasure. Uh, what have you been up to lately since you've been out of the game? You know, normal stuff, seeing, seeing kids, seeing friends, getting a break. And then obviously when the pre-season starts, it all changes. It feels a bit odd because you're used to doing what you do. And then the season starts and then it's just a bit peculiar because on the Saturday, you're not always thinking, I've got to prepare for a game, obviously. You know, you're doing some, sometimes just normal stuff, stuff that you can't do when you're working. So seeing friends, a barbecue, a couple of beers, you know, a gig or whatever. Um, so actually pretty normal stuff, game of golf. Um, yeah, so just sort of filling my time with that, but not really doing much work related. I've seen a couple of, I've watched a couple of games and um, a couple of friends who are in the game asked me to go up and watch their games and sort of give a view, if you like, you know, an honest view of what, what I thought early season. Um, so generally, just just quite casual, really. Um, nothing nothing too heavy. And have you had any approaches to get back into the game since you left Burnley? No, no, no. There's, I mean, you know, you've got to remember the timing of things. But, you know, most... Most clubs now are just planning on what they're doing with their own managers, you know, and I think, unfortunately, the, the perils of the job are that usually that kind of, I mean, people talk around that kind of October, November time, when clubs, if they're having an indifferent spell or whatever, that's when it often looks to change. And then maybe that kind of New Year time, you know, that kind of February, March time. Um, we all know the pitfalls of the job, you know, I mean, there's no, uh, um, there's no other thinking in a manager's lifetime that you know that these winners are around and you know that you, you need to win games, you know, to remain in place. Would you be ready to go back in now if, if the right offer came about? I know, I know yeah, the timing's not quite right, as you say. No, no, I, th- I think it's the right offer. And, and But like I say, I mean, I've, I've always thought, but, you know, I've heard other managers and coaches speak about that. And, you know, you hear these sort of phrases about, oh, you know, I want the right project working with the right people. It's not that easy. You know, there, there's only so many jobs out there. Um, and sometimes you have to be flexible and malleable to work with the people that you're working with and, and find the right way of it, you know, improving. So I think I'm very open-minded to what comes around if, if something does come around. I mean, I'm, I'm certainly not, you know, I think I've hurt my spurs somewhat, but that certainly doesn't mean you're definitely going to land another job. It doesn't mean that. So I'd never be uh, um, cocky or arrogant enough to think that because I've, I've done okay with things that I'll just suddenly get a job. Trust me, football's not like that. So mm-hmm. I'll be thankful for anyone who makes that call and asks me to maybe have a chat with them. Then I take it all seriously, no matter what level. And I was actually going to go right back to the beginning of your career um, on this pod. So right the way back to Forest, um, where you were as a young player. Sort of how much did that form your views as a manager that time there? I mean, it's one of them, a lot of people link you back to that time because it's Brian Clough and he's a legend and he is a legend. There's no two ways about it. 
But to be honest, you know, you've got to remember that that was a different era. You know, Brian Clough was managing through his persona and what he was and his knowledge, of course, but I mean, not through tactical training and training regimes and tactical planning. It was more about affecting people. And, and so I learned that, you know, affect the person and you will affect their performance, but you need some kind of effect, whether that's building rapport um, through fun or whether it's building rapport through helping someone and engaging in them. But I think that's really important. So Forest State, you know, Brian Clough, for all that he wasn't um, attached to the players, he had that power to affect people. And I think that's the thing that you gain from experience. You know, you don't just walk in a job and people suddenly think, you know, everything about what you're doing. But over time, you gain that kind of respect. And he certainly did that. Um, so really, it was it was about the the environment that, that they created at Nottingham Forest and he created. I think that was the biggest thing when I look back, of course. That was the biggest thing. And the fact that the, the simplicity of it, everyone knew how Forest played. Everyone, the youth team, the, the first team, the reserve team, the youth team, the kids teams. I mean, they talk about these things now, you know, it's quite interesting now. You know, this um, idea that these academies, you know, the, the same thought runs through the whole academy, like it's some kind of moment of genius. Brian Clough was doing that 30 odd years ago, 40 years ago, whatever it was. You know, everyone at Forest knew how to play. Everyone knew how it worked and everyone knew what the expectation was. It was very simple and very clear to everyone that was there. So I think yeah. that's an important factor that I definitely reflect on. That does get talked about a lot now, doesn't it? The club DNA, as you say, and running through. Well, that's what I mean, yeah. And it's, yeah. I mean, I do think that part of the media side of, of football now is vast. And I do think they, you know, you need some of these buzzwords and branding and, and, and that kind of thing. And it gives it a bit of flavour and, and more content. But at the end of the day, the point is people have been doing that for a long, long time, you know, and, and you put some a trendy badge on it, which is fine and appropriate in some cases. And it sort of repackaged it. But, but Brian Clough was doing that. Forrest were doing that many, many years ago. Do you think you're sort of born a leader or do you think you can really develop that? So if you haven't got those traits, can you develop them over time, do you think? Yeah, we, we talked a lot about that and coaches talk a lot about that um, because it seems like there's not not as many natural leaders, maybe because of the, the kind of power of social media. Now everyone's a little bit more insular in their own life and how they are and society's a bit more like that. Maybe. I mean, that's a viewpoint. Um, I'm not saying it is or it isn't, but maybe. Um, so developing leadership has become quite an interesting subject you know a lot of the courses you've got management courses they are talking about developing leadership so I think it can be developed also alongside that we all know there's certain people that they just gravitate that way they have that way about them you know and, and I've always been like that I know I always have been like that I'm not being arrogant about it I just have just naturally always been more likely to put my head above the parapet more likely to get a bit more outspoken more likely to plan things organize things get hold of situations um, so, some good some not so good gets me in a few scrapes down the years uh, yeah. but, uh, but you can imagine what I mean you know so we'll just gravitate naturally or more naturally towards that kind of thinking and others need developing or, or need it extracting from them or, or helping to extract it from them and I think that's a big thing now in, in football is explaining to the players there's different styles of leadership you know there's not one particular kind some may be more cut out obviously for it but there's many different ways that you can lead Brian Clough was obviously a huge personality and a huge figure but he, would he still give players the space to be leaders then and to impose their own personality yeah I mean you know it's a different era now it's kind of players want information the thing is with information it's like you get to a point with some players not all where it's almost like um, a crutch to lean on. It's like, well, you didn't tell me this, you didn't tell me that. Well, then days, Forrest in particular was way different than that. Forrest was like, you know, when the idea of doing a set piece of corner, they'd just be like, look around for the fella who's as big as you. 
You know, go and deal with it. You know what I mean? Almost putting the onus on you and the trust on you. I mean, famous stories, not that I was in that era, but watching documentaries about Bill Shankly, you know, just saying to the captain, you know what you're doing, don't you, son? And, and off you go then and take the team out, you know, and stuff like that. Now, of course, they'll have rubbed off on them during the week and stuff, but you get my point. They were saying, look, you're out there. You know, you're, you're a player who knows what you're doing, so we trust you to go and know what you're doing. And I think that has maybe waned a little bit in the modern game because obviously now it's almost like, we well, didn't show me this and you didn't show me that and you didn't show me this and you didn't show me that. And there's that kind of, like I say, a bit of a crutch to lean on, but not all players, but I think that's a more common trend now, you know, more information, more information, more information. And if you don't cover all the boxes or tick all the boxes, then some players have got to write say, well, you didn't tell me, you know. Mm, <laughs> in them yeah. days, it was like, well, stand up and be counted type thing, you know. So I think yeah. there's a balance. I think there's a balance. And I'm not saying either is particularly right or wrong. I think there's a balance to be found in, and knowing the people you're working with as well. You know, what yeah. kind of characters have you got? I think managers and coaches are under more pressure because of the depth of the media view now of what football's about, what they're about, what the expectation that they're meant to be about. And obviously there's a load of media now done on tactics and, you know, new, new uh, themes and regimes and all of that sort of stuff. So managers and coaches now are under a bit more pressure to deliver more and more and more content. But actually, in my opinion, sometimes you have to strip that back. It's about delivering the right content, not delivering it all, in my opinion, because players can only take on so much, you know. In mm-hmm. fact, human beings can only take on so much, but definitely players, they can only take on so much, particularly last 15 minutes before they go out, I'm giving very, very basic information because the brain's already spinning. You know, their emotions are spinning, their brain's spinning. So I personally would use less is more just before kickoff. Okay. Um, and on one of the talks, I think it was, oh, I can't remember which manager, but we had a few talks on the pro license. And I remember one of them saying, if you're giving lots of information just before kickoff, you haven't done your job right. Because by the time you're getting to kickoff, they should know what they're doing. And I thought, yeah, I thought, yeah, that's spot on. So that's yeah. certainly something that I took in my own toolbox and thought, right, I'm, I'm having that. I'm, I get that. So, yeah, less is more sometimes, in my opinion. Because I suppose we all watch the sports films where they give the big rousing speeches before the players go out. But... Yeah, maybe that's not the reality. No, no, that's different though, don't forget, because that's like a war cry. That's a different thing. So I think that's a fair one. What I'm saying is it's not con- there's not lots of content. There's not lots of detail when you're sort of saying, come on, lads, we've got to work hard. You know, key catchphrases, you want to play on the front foot. And, you know, that's more of a generalised view. I'm on about if you're giving loads and loads of information. You know, if you're saying to the player, look, what, what's their left foot? What's their right foot? You know, if they cut in, you've got to send them down the line. Well, if you're getting to the 10 minutes for a game and you're giving that kind of information, then I would suggest... Well, what, from what I learned and what I what I believe is that then you haven't done the work in the week. You know, you should have done it in the week, in my opinion. And at what age did you know that you wanted to become a coach or a manager? Um, I think when I was working at Chesterfield, playing at Chesterfield under John Duncan and Kevin Randall, um, they had a big effect on me. They had a big effect on a group of what I always say was a, a group of average that actually ended up being of not only a good side, but broke up for millions. You know, at that time, you're talking about a club like Chesterfield who'd sold like three players for like 15,000 quid. And then all of a sudden you've got a young Kevin Davis going for 750,000. You know, I went for kind of 375,000. Paul Holland goes for 200,000. Billy Mercer goes for 200,000. So I mean, you know, and all of a sudden this group of what was deemed an average group, all of a sudden are performing way beyond what the, you know, what it looked like. So I remember thinking, you know, I remember beginning to think about it, and I was probably about 25, 26, when you start coming out of your own self and your own part of that system and that situation and looking a bit more about the team and, you know, what the, what the team qualities are. Mm. And then by the time I went to Millwall at 30, I was already doing uh, my B licence. So I got that done there. 
Got my A licence done at Northampton by the time I was 35, 36. Colin Caldwell was ever so helpful to me because he knew I was coming to the end and he allowed me some time in pre-season to go and finish my A licence. Um, so by then I'd, I was forming what I thought were some beliefs in coaching and management. And then, of course, from there, I got a great, really a lucky breakthrough, Andy Boothroyd at Watford, where they took me in as a, a kind of uh, assistant coach, if you like, to the, the youth system. Um and that was a big break because it's hard. You know, it's hard to get into that level. You, know, you normally have to go in with the young kids and earn your spurs and all that sort of stuff. Well, I was straight in under 18 level. And I always thank him for that, you know, because it was it was a very big, uh, a very big point in my crossover from being a player to coaching. That was a really important time. So did you find that you were very good at it quickly because you moved up the ranks, didn't you, to assistant manager, to manager pretty quickly, really? Yeah, I, I found that um, it wasn't about being good at it. I found that I was I was a better learner than most people think. You know, because most people think of me that I'm always talking, I'm always out there, quite brash, quite front. But when people got to remember, they were like, no, he's, he's listening, he's learning here. And I was, you know, I was listening to, unfortunately, a great fella, Dick Bay, who, who unfortunately passed away. He's like a FA sort of legendary coach. And he was there and he was an incredible influence um, on me. David Dodds, who was the youth um, manager, um, the academy manager, he was a big influence. I think AD, of course, would always share time you. Then you cross over through a couple of different people along the way. Brendan Rogers came over the spell. Malky McKay took over as main manager, first team manager, and took me as assistant. So you are learning all the time and you're kind of earning your spares. But probably against popular or yeah, popular belief is that I wasn't I wasn't pushing these doors open. But there was a fellow, it's funny because there's a fellow who um, worked on the psychology side called Keith Mincher who's an ex-coach and was at Watford working on the psychology side. And he used to say to me all the time, he'd say, don't be surprised when it just starts coming your way. Because he always thought it was going to come my way, probably more than I did. But I wasn't deliberately pushing all the doors open, you know, trying to climb the ladder. It was naturally occurring. You know, I was really enjoying the youth system, getting paid peanuts, working every hour that, that there is. But I loved it. You know, I thought it was great. Um, so I was, it, it was kind of evolving and the doors started opening in front of me and then you've got a choice. Do you walk through the door or do you sit where you are? And I just decided, right, okay, each door that opened, assistant manager, manager, I just continued the journey. And it sat pretty easily straight away, did it, taking that leadership role and moving uh, I mean, you think, you think it's going to and you think it does in a way, but when you look back, you think, crikey, you know, you're, you're thrust into it. I mean, at Watford, I... Me and Malk had shared so much of what we do that then, of course, you're taking over from with players who are now going, what are you going to do different? But they don't know that you've been sharing all this stuff along the way. So now you're going, right, OK, I've got to kind of remodel what we do a little bit. And yet I believe in what we were doing before because Malky was very open with me. So a lot of my ideas he took on, a lot of his ideas I took on. So that was that was interesting. And. Then I had players at Watford who I played with as well. So Lloyd Doyle, legend that he is, Lloyd Doyle and Adi Mariapa and things like that. So then you've got to manage that situation because you actually physically played with these players. Um, so yeah, it was an interesting time, but I had some brilliant pros there and we signed some fantastic um, pros as well. Um, Johnny Hogg, who's, who's carried on his career at uh, Huddersfield, was a fantastic sign. John Eustace, of course, who's now managing. You know, he was keep, I mean, John, for what a player, he'd had so many injuries, but he just kept reinventing himself and we'd sort of change his role. And, um, you know, big influences, Andy Mariapra, said, Lloyd Doyley, um, so many, Nyra Nosworth, who we brought in, who was out of the picture at um, Sunderland, was a massive, massive effect on the group. Michael Kitely, who came out of wars, who had injuries, but he came in and made a big effect. You know, these were... These were situations I needed help and the players were fantastic, I must say that. So as I was maturing into the role, 
some of them were definitely standing up and being counted and real, real big influences on what we were trying to achieve. And of course, my staff as well, Ian Wone and Tony Lockley, who I ended up taking the burn with me too. You know, big, yeah. big fan, Alec Chamberlain, goalkeeping coach, you know, been around for a long time. So there was a, a really good, a good situation, but it's still difficult with hindsight. At the, at the time, you think, yeah, I'm going all right here. Yeah. But deep down, I look back now and think, blimey, you know, you're, you're managing everything. You're hanging on by the skin of your teeth, more or less. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. I guess it's a fine line, really, because you can't be too pally with the players who were your teammates at one time. But then also you don't want to impose yourself too much. That could be a risk. Again, like, I am a leader. I'm going to tell yeah, you. Yeah, no, that's right. No, that's right. Exactly that. And But I mean, I suppose the lucky thing for me, that, that for one, the players I was seeing who I played with were fantastic pros. Um, so there was a respect there from both ways because I played with them. They knew that. Um Number two, I think you've got to be authentic. And I think that was one of my key things. You know, whether whether I was there or not, I was still going to be me. So rather than try and turn into a manager and kind of um, act, you know, really differently, I kind of kept quite tight with the players, I think. A bit of fun. I always like a bit of banter, a bit of fun, a bit of throwaway stuff, dry humour. So I kind of kept with that. And I've always found, or, or I think I've found, that there's you can you can do it and you just need to know, they need to know there's a line where deep down they know you're the manager. And that's the key to it. And I think they did. I think they did at Watford. I think they did at Burnley. So I'd, I'd be in with the players, have a bit of fun with them. But when the crunch time came, they knew that I was the manager. And was that another big lesson when you got the sack? Because you seem to have done very well. You know, it's the best season for a long time for the club, but but you still got the sack. Yeah, there's a change of ownership, though. People forget that. You know, it's just a change of ownership. Um, you know, and they, they explained that at the time, said, look, we're going down a different route. So, you know, that's a different ball game, I think. And we'd had a relatively, we'd had a really strong season. You know, we finished 11th in the end. And was it a straightforward choice to go to Burnley after that? No, because I came out the job um, with Watford when they made the business change. I, I went through the whole interview process at Burnley. People forget that as well. It wasn't, um, they, didn't, they didn't just give me the job. You know, I think there was 12 interviewed originally. Then they narrowed that down, I think, to about four, maybe four or five. I mean, I know a little bit of the detail of who was involved because obviously since then I spoke to the ownership and said, you know, what was it like? Who did you meet? And stuff like that. Um, and then then I went through the whole interview process and then I got the call and they said, we'd like you to take the job. Um, ironed out the, the staff situation, um, ironed out the contracts and then and then got on with it. And what were your first impressions of the club when you got there? I thought it was misaligned. I thought the the, 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 the feeling of the club and the fans were kind of like, we should be back in the Premier League because they'd been in there sort of three seasons earlier. But the feeling in the boardroom was we should be cutting everything. You know, we've got to be cutting things. Um, so it's kind of like, you, you, you know, you're hard, you're hard pressed to... I always thought the fans deserve the truth or the authenticity of me and what it is. But obviously, you've got to try and do it in a way that's still very positive. You know, you can't just go, look... This is nowhere near where it needs to be. We've got contracts out. We're going to have to cut money because fans don't want to hear that, obviously. But that was the truth of what was going on. So internally, I'm trying to manage out the contracts and certain players manage them out of the club. Um, and externally, still kind of show that we're being positive. We want to create, you know, we want to be in the playoffs and all stuff like that. So, so it's quite a, it was quite a tough period, though. And the, the first sort of seven or eight months, people forget, you know, because obviously Burnley was a pretty successful story until last season. And, People forget that, that, you know, I was getting booed off half the time, you know, every every weekend, we, you know, if we didn't win, we get booed off, you know, and, uh, and I was copying a lot of it. So people forget that, you know, but um, I often remind the fans of that, though, when they're lauding me and say, well, you weren't lauding me when I first got it. So, uh, you know, a bit of playful fun with them. I started going quite a bit, I think, in the following season um, when I was working for newspapers. 
So I didn't, I didn't realise you actually got booed off at that that time. Yeah, I mean, there was a, there was a number of games, yeah, when the, the fans were probably, even if it'd be a favourable, probably 50-50 at best with, one, whether they wanted me there in the first place, and two, by the end of that season, whether they wanted me to remain. Um, and I always say, I, I think, because there's, there's a real honesty to the fan base there, and it's one of them weird things. If, if you turn it round and they accept you, they really will accept you. You know, they really gripped you. And I think that's what happened. I think, and I can never put my finger on this, but one of the defining things that I talk about a lot up there when I do uh, um, Q&As and stuff is that summer, we had to get some really big players who had become big players at that time. They had to go because of contracts and money and stuff like that. We only brought in three free transfers who turned out to be fantastic. Uh, Scotty Arfield, Tommy, and then Dave Jones. And we sold Charlie Austin two days before the season. And I think that was where the fans went, hang on a minute. Like, that's harsh, you know. And they sort of went with us then. And, and the preseason was very strong. Lots of good rumours going around about the team because we were we were looked fit and sharp. And we had top, you know, players playing at the top of their game. And I just had that feeling that first game, we played Bolton at home. We drew 1-1, but it was one of them, and that sounds a silly thing, but like a winning draw. It was a very positive performance, you know, and the fans were really buzzing off it. And then we just took off. And well, the rest is history of that season. We just started winning and we just never looked back. You know, players performing at the... I mean, a joy that season was to manage. I mean, they, these players were just coming in like kids in a sweet shop every day, just buzzing off it, you know, ready and raring to go. So, yeah. uh, no, it was a fantastic season, though. Yeah. And anyway, that was when the corner was turned for me as manager. That was when the acceptance came from the fans yeah. of what I was trying to believe in, what I was trying to promote. Everyone sort of did that paradigm shift thing where they were like, right, okay, let's go with this fella, you know, because he's, he's on to something type, type thing. And thinking back, you, you couldn't make an actual signing, could you, in that first season? Because there wasn't the budget there. And we signed. Uh, we tried to sign Ashley Barnes at the end, uh, right at the end of the window when um, we'd got the money of Charlie. Um, and then we couldn't get that done. And we got it done in the Christmas. And, and fortunately, we did, because unfortunately, uh, Sam Vokes, who was having a tremendous season, and did have a tremendous season, he'd done his uh, cruise ship in the March time. And so it was a you know a great thing that Barnes had come in because without that, we'd have been down to one striker. So we only carried two strikers at that time because of money and stuff. We had Sam Bokes and Danny Innes and a couple of young kids, that was it. So, you know, luckily we did get Barnes in in the um, Christmas window. So, you know, and then that was about... I mean, it's a steal now when I look back for Barnes and what he's done. It was like 450 grand or something, you know. And I remember you've spoken actually about your first board meeting at the club as well. And you were saying, look, I've played here a lot. The changing rooms are the same. The training ground's not good. Um, and you had a quote. You said, I told them, you can't do that again. There has to be a bigger future, um, a bigger picture. Yeah, so so what that came about with, um, we were we were actually or how it came about, was was when we got promoted, it was one of them things when, um, I mean, I can't go into too much detail, but it was one of them things where they were still servicing players' contracts who hadn't even been at the club for two years, where they'd made some, you know, signings that hadn't worked, put a lot of money in on the pitch, had given out free season tickets, and it, it just evaporated everything, really, and they didn't have anything physical to show for it. So I said, look, I said, by, by no means do I want to not stay in the Premier League, but surely you, you've got to like build something that means something. You know, this is a chance to build a training. I mean, the training ground, the old training ground was just a tiny place. And there was like one good pitch, one sort of average pitch. That was it. I said, look, it's, it's, it, it, you know, there's got to be something bigger than that. I said, I don't think you can go look back and not learn from the last time where you put it, you know, you put it all on the pitch, hoping for the best, but didn't have the structure 
to support it, even if you stayed up. So I said, you've got to, you know, in my opinion, I said, look, we need to put a structure in that means something for the, the longevity of the club. And they agreed. And to be fair, which is not always the case, they stood to their word because obviously we didn't stay up, but they never flinched. They didn't flinch with me. They didn't flinch with what the situation was. They all bought into the bigger picture, which was basically to build the training ground, which is there now and fantastic for a club like Burnley. Fantastic, honestly. So mm. put a bit onto the pitch, but not a lot. I think it was about 8 million or something in transfers. Sold a couple trips, went and people like that. So the 8 million was more or less balanced out or certainly a lot of it. Um, but training ground in planning, loads of money, which had never been there for years in the club, very healthy situation. So a tough one for me as manager, but they said their word and stood by me. So if I was going to sort of jump on the grenade, so to speak, it would have been a bit harsh if by Chris ever said, look, we're going to, we're going to get you out. And I was saying, hang on a minute, <laughs> you yeah. brought into the plan, you know, it was, a, it was something that we agreed was the bigger picture of the club. Unfortunately, they stood, stood by me and, you know, we went down and went back up again. Because I suppose because of the nature of management, most managers are going to want the money for transfer fees for themselves because it can be a short-term job, can't it, where it's reliant on them? Yeah, I mean, look, it is um, it is tricky, that business. It's very tricky because different boards will have different views. Different clubs will have different views. Fan bases have a different view. I was very fortunate in the sense the board were very solid with the belief in it. They wouldn't, they're not really, the, the board at that time were not really money, money types. Of, you know, they weren't, they didn't want to throw money around and all that it wasn't the plan of the club. They wanted the club to be solvent. That was a big thing they spoke about when I first got there, which is hard as a manager, but I get it. Because um, they'd had years of, you know, financial trouble and ups and downs and problems. So I, I sort of got that. And then the fans were brilliant. You know, the fans sort of, I don't know how to describe it, but it's almost like they got it. They almost went, right, we get it. You know, I've had so many years of ups and downs of the club being, you know, nearly blooming, getting, you know, into bankruptcy and all that. They seemed to get the whole picture and, and, and they sort of bought into it. And maybe because the, the promotion was out of nowhere. So the fans, you know, they were brilliant. I mean, I was at Forest yesterday. Their promotion came out of nowhere last season. Amazing. And they were excellent yesterday. And, you know, they're going to have to do that for the rest of the season because I know how important that is. But if the fans can grip hold of the truth of what the club is, I think gives you a way better chance of operating because nowadays it's that everyone's changed very quickly. Um, and I was fortunate with that. You know, everyone stood by the plan, stood to what it was, and the fans included. The fans were excellent. And, uh, and the fans, I've never questioned them ever since then. You know, even in my tough times, a few tough periods, including last season, the fans were still there. So, you know, there's no question of that. And it was quite an amazing transformation for anyone who's not been to the club or the training ground. Because I, I remember going to press conferences. I think they were in Porter cabins, weren't they? Yeah, yeah. Um, 13, 14. Well, I mean, one of the, one of the, well, a couple of the press people there who were there from the beginning, Chris Bowden, who's one of them, I was talking to just the other week. I mean, we used to go in the little tiny, there was like in the training hut, there's a little like a uh, referee's room. So that's where we used to do the media. I mean, you look back now and it was like mad. But when we started the process of improving the training ground, the old green, uh, sorry, the, the training ground sort of keeper's cottage they ripped out and did as the media centre, you know, and things like that. So, so it made a huge difference to the feel of the club, you know, and the, the kind of branding, if you like, of the club. And as you know now, the training ground, as I said, for a club the size of Burnley, it's a fantastic training ground. I mean, it really, the pitches are amazing and, you know, the feel of the place is, is, is really tops, I think, for, for like say, you know, it's, you know, you're not your Arsenal's, your Tottenham's, Man U's have got incredible places, but it's still a very, very good place. Um, and we've written a lot about the sporting director role 
would you say you were kind of quite similar to a sporting director in a way then because you're looking at the longer term vision as well? Yeah, I mean, I remember a number of years ago, I, got, I remember someone kind of getting the wrong in the stick about that. I said it was actually Arsene Wenger who said this. And then I was doing some a talk somewhere and they said about sporting directors. And I said, I said, well, like Arsene Wenger told me, they're always good if they listen to what you say. So I said that, but they sort of put it on me. And then they sort of went, oh, you know, I've, I've heard you wouldn't work this morning, director. I said, no, absolute nonsense. I said, it's Arsene Wenger who said that. And it was a bit tongue-in-cheek from it at the time. Um, I think I sort of ended up t- a type of that, but it wasn't really a sporting director. I think because the board were interested in me having quite a big input, like the branding at the training round is a lot of my stuff and, you know, strap lines and, you know, like sticky words, as we call it. That was a lot of my stuff. And they bought into that. Now, the point is they didn't, it wasn't, um, they didn't give me a tag. It was like a natural, um, a natural occurrence, you know, that I offered some ideas about varying things. They wanted me to have an, an input. Um, so the role of manager there evolved into more of a hands-on to everything style manager. Because you did actually get a technical director in, didn't you? I think, was that at the tail end of the previous owners? Uh, yeah, uh, well, not the tail end, for, for a good while. Um, yeah, Mike Rigg came in. And I worked really well with him. He was he was aware that you know I I had a big say in everything, and um, so he wasn't um, under any illusion when he came in. He wasn't uh, certainly very very easy to work with. Um, we we aligned with a lot of things. He kept us involved in everything. The staff involved in everything, um, opinions and sharing opinions. Um, so yeah, I, I thought that worked pretty well actually, uh, very well. You know, and I still speak to him now. You know, and he was a good operator. Um, they made a change with him, but he was a good operator in my experience. And, you know, I mean, yeah, again, it's one of them strange things about, you know, you, some people's viewpoints of what you do at a club like Burnley, because, you know, people were presupposing that, well, as you brought up, that we didn't have a technical director. like, yeah, we did have a technical director, you know, in a sport, you know, whichever you choose to use. Um, so I am used to working in that. It's just that some clubs have changed where almost like the, the technical director, to use that phrase, Almost is bringing in the players, removing players, and the coach is just a coach. Now, that's where it gets a bit tricky because then obviously the coach goes, well, hang on a minute, I don't want to lose that player, and I'm not sure I want that one coming in. You know, that's where it gets tricky. But if the lines of communication are clear and the outcome is clear, you know, this is what we're looking for. These are the style of players. This is the type of players. And I think I think it can work, you know, and it's shown that, you know, because it, it does take the good side, don't forget. It takes a lot of the work. Not the workload, because a manager's life is full on anyway, but kind of the, the nitty-gritty workload where sometimes you're like, what, you know, why am I getting involved in someone's contract, for example? You know, what am I doing that for? It's almost like their role to do that. And so that's where it can be very, very useful, especially in the modern game, because well, Premier League particularly, because the manager has all sorts going on in the Premier League. You know, managing the group, the media, blah, blah, blah. And the manager still has got to stay fresh for themselves, you know, to make sure they're ready to work. So, so I think it could really work well. So you would be quite happy to work with a sporting director? Yeah, like I say, it's, it's, a, it's another one of the myths. I've had many. Um, I, did, I didn't like, apparently I, I was uh, Brexit football because I didn't like foreign players, a load of nonsense. Uh, we just had a board that didn't want to buy into foreign players in the sense of the risk and reward. You know, the board at Burnley, sorry, the, the outgoing board were very risk averse. They were like, no, no, we want, we want kind of the safer players that can do the job, probably be sold and make a few quid for the club and, and sort of, you know, keep with what we've got. So therefore, you're going, right, well, the ones we know a lot of are often 
UK-based players because some of them I've known since they were youth players and youth coaches and, you know, you can find out so much information. So you, you're narrowing down your chances of the risk and reward and the, the failure. You're narrowing it down to be more positive outcome-wise. The new ownership were very more, very much more open-minded, which is obviously we brought in Val Veghorst, we brought in Cornet, because they were in a more open-minded thinking. You know, they were more likely to have a risk on it. So, yeah, again, that's another myth. The one about technical directors, another myth. You know, I, I don't run around Burnley thinking I could run everything. Definitely didn't. I, I allowed my departments to work. I have to have a, a say. But I wasn't going to start going in and telling the, the head of medical that he doesn't know what he's doing because he's an educated fellow in, in his field. I wasn't going to start telling the sports scientists they don't know what they're doing. I'm going to do it all because they're educated in their field. What I was doing was overseeing it and trying to bring it all together. So it's a different thing. So I know another one of the myths, but there's many, there's many to be honest. It, it seems to me as well, some of these improvements have to be very long-term, don't they? Like the academy, you know, to improve productivity, that could take 10 years, even if yeah, you improve yeah, it. Yeah, it's a big, it's a big point. Um, I mean, we made vast strides at Burnley with the academy from when we were first there to what it is or what it was a year or so ago. I mean, it's been different now, change of ownership, you know, and different views. Um, but massive strides, you know, in that area. And as you rightly said, what people forget is the thing with academies is sometimes people think you can get um, a product in at the beginning that is just, let's just say average, and make it world-class. You can't. That's not how it works. Development, in my opinion, development doesn't work like that. What you can get is you might get average to better, better to good, good to really good, really good to excellent, excellent to world-class. But to get average here to world-class ain't going to happen. So in my opinion, so the... the when you look at the top academies, I mean, some of the wealthiest are going worldwide to get them players. And even they can't bring the players through that will work miraculously getting the first team and become megastars. That's how difficult development is. And of course, at a place like Burnley, along the journey, maybe they go to Man City, maybe they go to Man United, maybe they go to Everton, maybe they go to Liverpool, and you start losing players at like 14, 15. Alternatively, sometimes you gain players who other clubs have let go, like a Dwight McNeil who ends up playing at a very young age, playing lots of football and moving for a, a nice bit of money for the club. Mm -hmm. You know, the yin and yang of it. But uh, the academy system is, is very good. Some of, the, some of what they do now is amazing. Some of the support is incredible. But it's still not a perfect system. No academy is where they just keep rolling players through it. Because as we all know, the famous um, class of 92, man, you've never done that since. You know, they've never found a clutch of players like that have been what they are. They've never done that since. And that's how difficult. And that's Manu, who arguably were one of the best new systems, especially under Sir Alex Ferguson. But he never found that clutch of players again. And they would, like as I said, they've got the chance to sign players worldwide. Very difficult. Development's very difficult. Were you a big driver behind going Cat 1? Well, I, I, I recommended it. You know, I, I wanted it to go Cat 1. Um, recommended it. I think, actually, I think just recently they've, they've lost that. I think they've gone Cat 2. Someone told me the other day. Yeah, yeah. Because another myth, by the way, people think I'm still obsessing about Burnley. I'm not. No, I've done my bit. Someone else. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? um, but yeah, someone mentioned it the other day. One of the staff members I spoke to, I was catching up with, mentioned it. So, but that aside, I was definitely a big, you know, big believer in the youth system and, and trying to get it to to work better, to to try and be productive, of course, um, and to try and make that work. Because when I was at Watford, it was a massive thing. I mean, I think when I was manager at Watford, I think something like forty eight percent of the players had come through the youth system there. So I was a big believer in that, you know. But getting it to the place where they can go into the Premier League, that's the key. Very difficult to bring players through an academy system and go straight into the Premier League. Very difficult. I suppose it's the same with recruitment as well, isn't it? You 
need a scouting network, don't you, over Europe and over the world, you know, and you can't build that overnight either. Yeah, I mean, that was a big thing for us. Um, Another question mark when I was talking about earlier about this idea that I didn't like foreign players, we didn't have the scouting system to go and get foreign players. You know, we didn't have the depth of scouting. That came under Mike Rigg when we started putting more investment into the scouting um, and the board recognised that. But it still then takes a long time because guess what? People are in front of you. There's other clubs out there have been doing that European thing for 20 years. You know, Burnley had only really the last two or three years started getting depth into Europe, maybe maybe three or four years, but really getting some depth into Europe. And then the pandemic hit, of course, so then you can't get out there and do what the work that you really want to do. Um, so, yeah, that took time. You know, it took time to keep layering up, keep adding finance, keep layering up, keep adding finance, trying to get the right people in try to get the right eyes on the road, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So it takes time, but most people don't want time. You know, they want it done yesterday. We're all guilty of it. We're all guilty yeah. of it. You heavily involved as well in the branding, the legs, hearts and minds. Yeah, that was a lot of my stuff that would just strap lines that I believed in, stuff I'd used in team meetings. Then we started adding some of the players' stuff and stuff they'd fed back and some slogans around the ground, things that players had said, staff as well. Um, you know, I, I just felt it was appropriate for the club and the feel of what we wanted. Um, the the kind of attachment we wanted from the players, from the fans and that kind of, you know, one club mentality, I call it. You know, it's a one club mentality where everyone, the fans, the board, the manager, everyone kind of gets the, the key core values of what it is. So we just started adding some of these slogans and strap lines and giving it a kind of an anchor, if you like, you know, where people would kind of come in the training and know where they'd been and know the environment. And I think that was a big thing for me. And I really... You know, I really um, enjoyed that side of what we we created there because I'd have guests from all sorts of sports and businesses in come in and they were like, I remember, I remember it was Tony Smith at Warrington Walls at the time and Eddie Jones said the same thing. They, they both came in at separate times, obviously, Tony a number of years ago and then Eddie um, a couple of years ago, just at the end of the pandemic. And um, I remember their phrase, and Stuart Pierce was another one who came up and spent some time with us. And I remember the three of them that, all separate characters, all different characters. I remember at the end of the day, we can total access, by the way, in our meetings and everything. And I remember this key thing they said, especially Tony Smith, because it was years ago. It was probably seven, eight years ago he came in. And he said, look, lads, I don't know anything about football, but I'm telling you, it's right here. He said, I can just feel it. And that's a big thing, you know, when you're, when you're trying to create something, it's brilliant when that happens, when... You know, someone who's quite a novice in the football world, but have been in many environments, of course, comes in and just says, I can, it's just right. You know, Stuart Pearce is the same, Eddie Jones the same. He said, you can just smell it. It's just right. You know, the, the manner of people, the feel, the energy, the environment, the, the relaxed sort of feeling, the, the, uh, the respect as well. You know, the players are very respectful. I mean, used to get that a lot from a lot of guests. And I think that's, I think that's something that I really, really value. Take great value in that. And, the, and all of the staff and the players involved in creating that. Yeah, definitely. Um, and I do wonder as well, I think maybe people have a bit of a misconception about this or get confused about this. But I suppose there's you as a manager with your fundamentals. And then there's you as Burnley manager. And you're going to tailor what you do according to that club, the budget, the town, the, but is it fair to say that's not necessarily all of you as a manager and what you would do at another club? Oh, well, look, the, the, the popular thing then becomes you get put in a box, we all know that. I've got no problem with it. I never have. You know, it's one of them weird things, you know, all these different things. It, 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 what people forget about um, the media, not just the media, but this is media fans, it's very easy to create and then stick with it because 
you roll it out. You can roll it out dead easy. You know, Burnley, back to front football, um, don't like foreign players, you know, all of that, don't, you know, whatever. It's very easy once you create that to just keep rolling it out. So the challenge is that deep down, I know what we'd really do. The staff know what we really do. The players know what we really do. So then you're like, well, do you fight to change it? No, what's the point? You're just wasting energy. So in the end, I just go, right, okay, think whatever you want. As long as my players know what we're doing, they know they're treated, they know respect, and I'm a staff, I'm cool with that. So you end up with that sort of situation where, in answer to your question, my point is I'm very much more open-minded about what comes next. I'm very much more open-minded about styles, about playing styles. If you get a game at Nottingham Forest, you know, who at that time were playing modern football like you've never known. And yet they presuppose I've changed everything for my own way, but I haven't. I've looked at the players we've got I've looked at the best chance that we can be successful. I looked at the best chance that they can be successful. Because don't forget, when you're bringing in Michael Keane for two million and selling for 25, that's success. You know what I mean? Danny Ings for a million and selling for nine back in the day, that's success as well. You know, these are different kinds of successes, but they are successes. Tommy, and we bought him for a free transfer, just been relegated at Bristol City, plays for England, has seven or eight years at the club, gets sold for nine million at like 32. I mean, they're big successes. So, in answer to your question, I think the question was implying, have you got more than just these simple things that put you in a box? It's not that I'm being grandiose about it. I think I could offer something that could affect a different situation, a different club, and if it needed a different style as well, whilst still remaining true to the fact of what I believe is important and what I believe is important for any team. And so, you know, moulding that into a different version, I think I'm more than capable of. Because it seemed to me, I mean, tell me if I'm wrong, but the legs, hearts and minds, you were tailoring that for the town and the club. As a, It's not necessarily yeah. all you and what you are. Well, well whether, whether it is or not, it's not a bad thing, you know, to have legs, hearts and minds. That's not a bad thing. No, 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 no. So I think the truth of it is, I remember doing my first uh, big sort of press conference, or, or big-ish at the time, you can imagine. And I just said, look, the one thing, I can't guarantee the, the best football, amazing football, I can't guarantee this and that, but what I can guarantee is you'll have a group of people who give everything and there will be sweat on the shirt. So I thought, well, you know, you've got to know Burnley's a very, very working class. Right? Lots of trouble. They've had so many t- harsh times in the Burnley area. I thought, well, what, what, is it, what, what would you expect as a Burnley fan? Well, I'd expect somebody who wears that shirt and gives everything to try and win a game. And that, that was the minimum I thought. The minimum requirement is maximum effort. There you go, it's another one of my slogans. So, you know, I was just went on that kind of thinking. And I thought that was important to the area. And then, of course, as you're suggesting, when later on when we started building the club, then I thought, yeah, legs, hearts and minds fits. You know, it fits this place because we're going to have to, we're definitely going to have to run. If you're in the Premier League and you're at Burnley, you're running. Don't worry about that. Um, heart because you've got to care, you know, I think. And mine's because... You've got to be open-minded to the challenge. You know, if you're at Burnley, you're in the Premier League, rather than hide away from, you know, make big big statements, we're going to do this, we're going to do that. We were like, no, no, lads, what we're going to do is understand what we do and the reasons we do it to get the outcome we want. So therefore, that's going to take focus as well. So, you know, trying to get a feel of a club, that's what it was. Um, and, and we created that. Yeah. You can get, I suppose, that late, aren't you, of old school, which is, again, what I don't know exactly what that means and whether that's bad, and then basic, you know, as well. They're, they're the labels that can get attacked. Yeah, I've had all of that. I mean, stuff that always makes us laugh. I remember they going to, um, I think it was, yeah, I think it was Conte went into Chelsea 
and and they were they they described um what was it? They described his his um, fitness regime. They were kind of going, yeah, this modern fitness day, you know, doing and giving all these waxing lyrical things. And it turned out he was rap absolutely rapping them. I mean, running them really, really hard. Pochettino the same. Um, and we used to laugh. If that was me, we all know they'd be going, oh look, you know, old fashioned, you know, and all that sort of stuff. But these are the these are the truths of the market, and you've got to just roll with them. I don't mind because I know I speak to some of these managers, and they're like. What do you mean? They've got to be fit. So I'm working them. End of story. No trendiness, no modern words. They're just going, no, oh, no, they're running. Because believe it or not, people forget the simplicity of life. You can't run, you know, without running. <laughs> you can't run, you've got to practice running to be able to run. You know, it's like, so, so when you come out, or not you personally, but when these things are thrown around, you know, uh, you know, simple or, you know, that's all they've got and all that, you just got to realize that that's fine. That's just opinion. The facts are, the facts are you know what you do and you know the reasons for doing it. You know, yeah. and I mean, we've had so many players come into the environment and just dispel all these, you know, they came in with a, a thought of what Burnley were about and then they come in the actual environment and go, this is not how we imagined at all. This is not how I thought it would be. So in a, in a positive way, by the way. Yeah. So you just got to roll with it. And, and, and by the way, there's nothing wrong with the basics. No. Yeah, no. getting the basics right. Trust me, that is definitely one of my fields. Get the basics right. Before you think you can change the world of football, get the basic principles right. So that will never change because that's really valuable. Simple is simple is still not always best, but simple is often best. Was there an effort to evolve the uh, sort of style of play, or was that always there? Because I'm thinking, like I watched yeah. uh, Brighton when you, I think it was three nil or three one, and played really good football in that. No, game. Well, look, I mean, what what, what are you going to do in the Premier League, right? So half the teams are arguably better than you before you can kick a ball. So my thought was, how can you not be as good as someone but still win? Or, or get an outcome. That was always my thought. So I always used to, it used to really tickle me when teams used to go to Man City and get wrapped 5-0, and they go, oh no, but they really tried to play. And I'm like, right, you got to beat 5 nil. Now as it happens, we, we were going for the record at the most 5 nil, so it didn't work. But we did beat them, and we did draw, draw with them as well. So, But you know my point, it's like, well, hang on, why, why do something that they, that you know they're better than you are, you know? So therefore, what could we do that would upset the, the the feel of the game and give us a chance to go and win. But then on the other hand, you get teams that you now feel right, right, we're we're level with these, at least level. And there's some teams, not many in my history in the Premier League, and we thought we're better than these. And then, of course, you play more because you go, right, okay, well, we think we can outplay these or we can outmove them or we can out whatever. But I just think there's some, well, for me, it's naive if you think you're going to go to um, Anfield and dominate the ball, think you're being naive. Or, or, sorry, that's not fair. Dominate it and get an outcome. Mm. Teams can go to them clubs, right? And they look right, they keep the ball and they're passing it all around the back. And you're going, yeah, but you haven't, you haven't affected them yet. You know, you just pass it around the back, you haven't affected them. And I've heard, I've heard, I've heard people going, oh, yeah, but they had 48% possession away at Man U. And you go, what was the score? And they go, they lost 3-0. And you go, all right. So there has to be just some key thinking, I think, on my way of working is, right, okay, who are we playing? What can we do to affect these that's going to give us a better chance of winning? Yeah. And that's why we did what we did. And I don't defend good football, bad football, because there's many different ways of playing football. You never heard me, I did say actually in an interview once, I said, uh, I said, um, like tongue in cheek, I said, well, Man City were, were a joke today. They had 700 passes. I said, that's, that shouldn't be part of the game. You know, I was taking the mick, obviously. People yeah, yeah. say, well, you just kick it backwards and forwards, you know. And I was like, well, why don't anyone question that? 
you know, have 700 passes or whatever. And you're going like, well, that should be, it should be banned. Why are they allowed 700 passes and every player? I think we played them once, you know, every player was 50 million. Every oh, single player. Right. Or 40 million, I think. And we were like, right, okay. It's <laughs> interesting. Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's got to, you know, there's got to be a bit of, um, there's got to be a bit of common sense wrapped up with, with all this stuff, you know what I mean, in my opinion. And there still has to be some key core values of what you do to try and give you the best chance of winning. Because whatever yeah. people say, you, that's what it's about. You've got to try and win. Mm-hmm. Burnley are talking about that quite a lot this season, aren't they? The possession stats, <laughs> the Barcelona. Um... Yeah, but that, but that's yeah, but yeah, again, that's fine. It's a different. They've, they they want to create a different thing. No, no, got no problem with that whatsoever. You know, I wasn't trying to make it, our thing was perfect. I was trying to get the outcome that we all wanted. I got yeah, people forget. You know, this it, it, these subjects are really tricky because they get misconstrued very quickly. But don't forget, Burnley Football Club. There was people going. Um, you know, we used to get it a lot, as you know, but, oh, you know, they just play long football and all that. You're like, well, I think actually it was one of the other managers, it might have been Steve Bruce, said to me, he said, he said, Daichi, you don't need to worry about that because it's impossible in the Premier League to do that and do what you've done. So he said, you have to play more than that to create what you're doing. So he said, don't even worry about it. And that was years ago. And he's right. You know, you've got to do what you've got to do. So as regards styles, what suits your players, what gets the outcome. So if you can play amazing football, and win every week or win, you know, loads of games. Every manager wants to do that. Trust me, every coach and manager wants to do that. It's just that sometimes you've got to look at it pragmatically and go, these aren't capable. You know, the other thing I bring up a lot, some, in my opinion, there's managers out there who are not actually fair to the players, no forget, because they get them in a situation when they, they, their skill is not that skill. Their, their skill set is not that. And then you go, well, hang on a minute, I've got to also be fair to the players, in my opinion, and give them a chance to operate at their highest level. So moulding that into a team, giving them the chance to operate, depends on your players. I mean, there's another coaching point for you while we're, while we're on this kind of theme. So I remember talking about Kieran Trippier, actually, and they were saying, oh, you know, um, you know, people say you play too many long balls, the usual stuff. And I said, well, have you ever turned it the other way? Because if I took away the chance for Kieran Trippier to play a long ball, I'd actually do him a disservice because he can, he can pass the ball any length, any distance and land it. So I'd actually been detrimental to him by saying, right, Trips, I only want you to play at 10 yards because he could have got way more. I think Graham Taylor said, when does a long ball become a long pass? Well, you get that as well, of course. You know, you know, you play the top teams and it's a long pass. You play Burnley and it's a long ball. We get all that, but that's fine. That's, that's part of media and branding. Um, I mean, Graham Taylor, rest his soul, fantastic fellow that he was. He told me a brilliant story, actually. He went to... Uh, He'd analysed um, Liverpool over a season. And when, when he got um, Watford into the top flight, I think it was Bob Paisley. He said, um, Bob, he said, I've got to ask you. He said, I've, I've had someone to analyse your games and make notes. And he said, you've played nearly as many long balls as we have at Watford, but no one talks about it. And he said, oh, he said, we only pass it around the back when we're 3-0 up. Uh, uh, That's like genius. You know what I mean? He's more or less saying, yeah, we get it forward. Don't worry about that. We yeah. try and hit them, score goals, and then we play football. So... Yeah. You know, there's some twists in the story, but it's a big discussion. It's a big debate, and I'm not remotely... See, the problem is, right, we're chatting like this. I guarantee if this was um, a media, as in a uh, forum or something, people would go, oh, look, you know, he's defending himself. Go, I'm not defending myself. I'm just saying there are different ways of operating with the different teams you've got and the different skill sets. But whatever yeah. you do, and this is not development, by the way, don't forget, we're talking about first-team football. Mm. Guess what you're judged on? Winning. That's what you're judged on. So whatever you think and however you want to play, don't forget to win. 
Because <laughs> that's the job. And we didn't win enough last year and I lost my job. Fact. Yeah. You know what I mean? So there it is in a nutshell. Yeah. Yeah. How was that news actually delivered on the day? Did you, were you called in to see the... Uh, no, no, very, very simply. Uh, Alan Pace just came in the office, just said, look, Sean, we're going to make a change. Um, I said, okay. That was it. You know, I don't know what anyone thinks was going to happen. But I just went, okay, I'm, I'm pretty, uh, pretty straightforward kind of guy. I was like, Alan, that's the way it goes. And I just said, the only thing I referenced was, I'm just surprised because this on paper is the best spell of games of the season. You know, the eight games left, if you look at it over a season, the, the, the more winnable, because they're not easy, obviously, but the more winnable games, I think there was only Tottenham away, which on paper was a, was a you know, real tough game or a tougher game. You know what I'm getting at. That was the only thing. I said, okay, but I respect it. That's the way it goes. Very simple line of communication. Incredibly simple. Shook hands, said, I wish you well. That's the way it goes. Because at the end of the day, right, I can, of course, there's reasons why I feel that things didn't go as well. But we didn't win enough games. And that's the business you're in. And we had a team, I believe, could have won more games. So therefore, I go, okay, you know, we didn't win the games. Now, there's other reasons, which are private to me. But at the end of the day, we didn't win enough games. It's a fact. Are there any of those reasons you can talk about or, or reveal? No, because it, it just gets misconstrued and it just changes the story. One thing I will say is this. People say, oh, you don't seem that bitter. And all that. I said, why would I be bitter after nine and a half years of me and many other people, by the way, I must add, making a huge difference to Burnley Football Club and the town and the feel and everything. Why well, am I going to remember it for a bad six weeks or eight weeks or whatever? Why do that? There'll be nothing but good news for me about Burnley. Nothing at all. And the new owners were fine. They want their own way of working, a different way of working. They're the owners. That's what owners, you know, if they want change, they can change. So that, I've got no problem with it at all. The people were fine. They were fair. <coughs> Alan and his people, good, good mannered people, very respectful people. They just wanted to make a change. That's it. And, uh, and I've never hide behind what I said. We, we didn't win enough games. Simple as that. Because um, I suppose looking in from the outside as well, we think, well, you're not being very grateful. You know, look at where the club is now. Look at the training ground. Look at the academy. Look at been in Europe, you know. Yeah, but that's like anything. Like we, it's, it's all it's all easy with hindsight. It's all relative, but it's relative to where you are at that time as well. Mm. So you know, it's. I mean, a lot of people were saying they should have they should have kept with him so that he could have a real sort of sign off, you know, from the club and change it. So I'm like. You can't just do that to risk risk a season or someone having a sign-off so they can clap the fans. You know what I mean? So I get all of that. You know, I'm like, no, no problem for me. Um, but there's, there, there, you know, the, the, the thing about what we did there and the feel of it, that has to remain. So I'm, I'm never going to question it. And I wouldn't question there. You were remarking on the change of what they want to try and do with the team. Mm. That's absolutely fine. To me, there's loads of different ways of working and operating still the outcome is going to be the key. So you can't judge anyone at the first five count of the season. What about when you are, you know, when the last five have played, when that final whistle of the season goes, where are you? That's the truth of what you do as a manager. And I said that every season at Burnley. I said, it's a, it's a season's work for us. Um, and that was always my focus. Yeah. I suppose I think <laughs> it shouldn't be a disaster for a club like Burnley to go down. Really, when you look at the size of the town, the stadium, the fan base, the budget, you know, did, did it need that massive reaction? Because it shouldn't be a disaster, really. Um, well, the, the, the challenge was recycling the team. The challenge was the finances to recycle the team. The challenge was to keep 
re-energizing, re-believing, bringing younger players through and all that. And, and the problem was because what, what happened to the club for the two years during the pandemic was trying to be sold. So we didn't put enough team, money into the team, you know, and that was, that's not rocket science. You know, if you look through the Premier League, everyone has to invest in the team. And we didn't. So that was always going to have a knock-on effect. But that was like two years ago, three years ago, you know, but I was recommended then. I said, look, we've got to start putting new players in now and let them grow with the club and the team, you know. Mm -hmm. um, so that's the bigger picture. It's not all about the immediacy. It's not just about the last, you know, six weeks that I had there or anything like that. There was a lot more to it than that. Yeah, yeah. Oh, and I'll just ask a few quick ones, actually, because I've <laughs> taken a lot of your time up. Um, I'm quite interested in backroom staff um, mm -hmm. and assistants, because some people say maybe a manager should get new assistants or people they don't know, different skill sets. Um, but is it very important for you having people you're very close to, like Ian Wone and Steve Stone? No, well, another, another misconception, um, a, a lesser one, though, is that I bought these people in because they're my friends. I brought them in because they're good operators, all pro licensed, by the way, all pro license holders, good operators. They've earned the right. They've been through youth systems, put the miles on the clock. They've earned the right. And they're different to me. I spoke to Tony Lachlan today. Different character to me, different feel to what he does, different belief in what he does. Ian Wong's different again, different character, different style, different feel. Can't all be, if you're all the same, Steve Stone, another one, they're different to me. If you're all the same, you're not going to get the right outcome, in my opinion. So I bought a staff in that would give opinion, share opinion, listen, and also deliver. So it wasn't about just their mates. It happens they are mates, but the point is they're different people to me. They're different characters. And I deliberately wanted that, and I deliberately did that. Um, and it, So that we could rub off in different ways, you know, yeah. rather than us all thinking the same thing. Yeah, yeah. Is it important <coughs> having those people you're close to? Because I know we had Eddie Jones on the podcast, and... Uh, he was saying it can be lonely being a head coach and who's there oh, yeah. to motivate you and look after you, you know. Well, you, yeah, you, who's going to motivate the motivator and all them sort of sayings. Yeah, I mean, it, you know, it, it is, but that's that's what you buy into. That That's your job. That's You know, that comes with the territory. Um, you know, we always laugh. It's always everyone else has done well when you win and when you lose, it's always you who haven't done well. <laughs> all right, okay. So I have to spread the win with everyone. When it's losing, what are you doing? They go, all right, okay. Back on me. Yeah, yeah. Um, but that's look, that's 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 what it is. That's the, the rules of the jungle, you know. That's what you're in. Um, if you want to be, um, you know, with people and everyone around you all the time, don't be a football manager. Trust me, because they, they soon uh, you soon feel people just easing away from you when you're not winning. Trust me, everyone's <laughs> just suddenly disappearing. Then when yeah. you're winning, they'll come back again. Yeah, so, yeah. Uh, no, but it can be. It can be a very lonely place. Yeah. Yeah. And did you all live in a flat in Wall? <laughs> is that true? The, the three. No, me and Wony. No, just me and Wony. And sometimes oh. a couple of staff, Billy Mercer. Another good operator, by the way. I forgot about Bill as well. That's not fair. Mark Howard, good operator, you know. Um, no, we had a, a, an apartment in Wally and me and Wally stayed there just for a couple of nights, a couple of three nights, four nights, whatever, whatever we needed. And Billy had come and stay over sometimes with us as well. Oh, okay. And did you get approaches from other clubs while you were at Burnley? Yeah, yeah I was always very upfront about it. I always spoke to the ownership uh, more so. Obviously, I spent more time with the, uh, Mike Garlick and me at the other board. Um, yeah, very open about it. Very, You know, just... Varying reasons, different different reasons, and and I, and I was really enjoying what we were doing at Burnley as well. People forget that sometimes, you know, it's not always about the next one; it's about what what's happening at the one you're at. And um, and I was enjoying what we were doing at Burnley, and yeah. I enjoyed it right the way through. By the way, new owners, old owners, irrelevant. I enjoyed what we were doing. Hard work, but I enjoyed it. And yeah, I suppose you've talked a lot about being adaptable, and you realise it could be different elsewhere. 
is it fair to say it's unlikely you would get that level of control somewhere else that you've enjoyed? I think I think you earn it. I don't think it's uh, likely or unlikely. I think you earn it. I think over time, well, if, if you're in a club for an amount of time, you earn it. You know, I think you earn more of that shared view, shared control, belief, trust. It comes with time. And usually, of course, it comes with success as well. Not always, but if, you know, if the, if the owner or chairman believes you're a good operator, um, as long as you win enough, obviously, then, then they'd probably stick by you. Um, you know, it does happen with some managers. The other side of it is usually trust and all that's built on success, of course, you know, and, and then they believe more, they trust you more, and therefore you get more say or more, more shared opinion on what's going on. Um, but yeah, I think, I think you build it. Yeah. And are you the sort of person that has set goals as well? You'd write those down, I want to achieve X, Y, Z. No, not really, because I was thinking, you know, I was, I was careful with that because I get the psychology, trust me, I, I deal with psychologists, but I sometimes say they're limiters because you can limit yourself as well. You can hit a limit the way you think, oh, I might have, I might have you know, put that too low almost. Um, but then equally, you, I know you can reassess, of course. We've spoken about this many times, psychology, about reassessing. But it's like some managers do the cycles, like a six-game cycle. And I always thought, well, okay, so if your six-game cycle and your projection was whatever points and you get one, how do you rebuild that mentality then? So I'm always a bit wary of all that sort of stuff. I, I like the concept of it, though. You know, I like the idea of having a goal and a focus. But in my life today, in my lifetime, you have to be flexible as you go in towards the goal, you know, because there's many different things can occur. And, yeah. and never, in my opinion, never, never, you know, don't put too low a limit on it. You know, you can, you can put too low a limit. And you put too high a limit where it's just, you know, you got nothing going to happen. So, mm-hmm. I, you know, I, I call it positive realities, actually. That's yeah. another one of my little slow no. positive realities. I always had a lot of admiration for Roy Keane, the fact he could win the treble, yet he's still, or Sir Alex Ferguson, they still have that hunger the following season. But then, same with more. It's like anything good, you want more. You yeah, know, you, yeah. And, and don't forget, it becomes, it becomes uh, the, the challenge is once you've tasted it, you, you want more, but then it becomes part of who you are. I think Man United at that time, that's just who they were. You know, I remember, I remember when they, they beat Arsenal um, 3-1 away. I think, I think it was 3-1 when Rooney scored the amazing 1-2 when he played a massive 1-2 run all the way on the pitch and scored. And Tom Cleverley was with us at Watford. Um, so Alex rang Malcolm Kahn and said, I want him to come over to get in the dressing rooms and that. So I spoke to him on the minute and said, Tom, what was it like? You know, massive result. And he said, you know what? It was just like another day. Just like, well done, lads. Well done, blah, 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 blah. Not like high five and running around like crazy. And that was a big game. I don't even remember. It was a massive game for him. And he said, no, it's just like, um, yeah, that's what we're about. And I remember thinking, that's real winners. That's real winners. When they're not running around crazy and running up and down the sidelines doing cartwheels, they're actually going, no, this is what we do, lads. Yeah. I remember thinking, yeah, I like that. I thought, mm, that's, that's how real winners operate. I wonder if it's hard to also live in the moment and enjoy it, though, if you're constantly wanting more. Well, that, but that's, the, that's the, 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 the thing of who you are, isn't it? You know, that, that's, the, that's who you are as a person. I mean, winning to me just makes me feel right. It just levels me out. You know, I, but I love that feeling. and I search for that feeling. It just gives me that nice warm glow. You know, it just levels me out. It gives me that nice warm glow. I don't want to run around going crazy and all that. That's not my back. But I know internally how I feel. And it always, it definitely... Um, lights the flame in me when we win. Thanks so much for your time, Sean. Cool. No problem. Thank you for listening to the Training Ground Guru podcast in association with Huddle. We'll be back next month with another episode. In the meantime, you can follow our latest updates on the website and on Twitter at ground underscore guru.